Our scripture lesson today comes from Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. First, let us pray. Creative God, in the beginning, the earth was void and formless. You called forth life and created humanity in your boundless image. Help us embrace our diversity so that we may be one with all according to your will and open our hearts and ears to your holy word. Amen. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, look, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will not be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, as you just heard Carolyn read, we're dipping back into Genesis today. I promise it is just for today. I haven't forgotten we spent all summer there, but I did intentionally hold this story back until now. Since if we are going to talk about building and foundation and all of that, if we are truly people who are learning about how to construct a world that is as close as possible to the kingdom of God here on earth, well, it might be instructive to hear about a similar sort of effort that goes terribly wrong. Now, just to situate ourselves, the Tower of Babel appears early in the story of our humanity, even before Abraham and Sarah and all the folks we spent our summer with. There's creation, then there's Cain and Abel and the infamous question, am I my brother's keeper? There's Noah's Ark and the great flood and the rainbow. And after that, the whole earth had one language and the same words. That is how the story of Babel begins. Everyone was the same and they settled in the land of Shinar, a place that while we can't say for sure, Archaeological evidence suggests that the text may be talking about a place 
roughly 225 miles south of Baghdad. Now, after settling in, the first thing they do is manufacture building materials, bricks. And once they've got the materials, they decide immediately to build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. They want to make a name for themselves, to establish themselves, to stake their claim. Otherwise, they fear they will be scattered all over the earth. This is what we will do, they say. We will build a tower with its top in the heavens, and everyone will know who we are and that we belong here. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. They were, as my mother might say, a little full of themselves. One scholar long ago put it this way, what they lacked in theological competence, they made up for with overwhelming confidence. And so God is threatened by all of this and fears this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. And to avoid this, God comes to earth and scatters the people, giving them different languages and different cultures and different lands. So if that is the way we read this story, different languages and different cultures and different lands come about as a consequence for bad behavior. Diversity, as we know it today then, can only be understood as a punishment, the result of sin. For much of our Christian history, that is how this story was interpreted. But in the last 20 or 30 years or so, which is actually quite recent in terms of biblical scholarship, scholars began suggesting there is ample evidence that we understand this story differently. Terence Fretheim, a brilliant scholar of the Old Testament at the University of Chicago, he discovered several ancient Hebrew writings that used that exact same phrase, it's top in the heavens. But none of those writings that he found were describing human-made towers. They were describing trees and mountains. And so Dr. Fretheim became convinced that this phrase that we find in Genesis is not about challenging God. It's simply what people said when they saw something tall and grand. He says it was similar then to how we use the word skyscraper or high-rise. Now, I wasn't here when the Bank of America building or the Meridian building or the Capitol Center were being built, but I could find no report anywhere that said these buildings were constructed to challenge God's authority. I found all sorts of language that described them as very tall buildings. And then in studying that original language even more carefully, a Dutch scholar, Ellen Van Volda, wrote that the phrase, let us make a name for ourselves, would be better translated, let us make one name for ourselves. It appears, she wrote, that the people didn't want multiple names. They all wanted to be known as the same thing one name. 
So all of this, and you are good for hanging in there with me, all of this led Fernando Segovia, a brilliant professor at Vanderbilt University who specializes in reading scripture through the eyes of minority cultures. It led him to wonder if perhaps the problem in Babel was not pride and arrogance and a desire to challenge God's authority and power. Maybe, he says, the problem was that people all wanted to be the same. They wanted the same language and the same culture. He says this makes better sense of what happens in verse 6. Look, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And he says that those words of God do not imply that God is threatened by human beings and their big towers. They imply that God is annoyed because if everyone is the same, human beings will just turn inward and focus only on themselves. There will be nothing to draw them outward. So this new train of thought This new interpretation among prominent scholars led others to ask a very reasonable question. Why on earth would the God of the universe be threatened by human beings? God is not threatened by human beings. A God that could be threatened by us would be rather weak or insecure. So it could not be that interpretation people began to believe. God is not threatened, but God sure is angry because one people, one name, one language, one culture, that was never the way that God intended for things to be. Over and over again from creation onward, the Bible makes it very clear that we were designed for diversity. And so diversity could not possibly be a punishment. Now, yes, on World Communion Sunday, we are invited to remember that we are called to be one body of Christ. But that is not the same thing as thinking we all have to be the same. If anything, this day encourages us to intentionally remember that Christians are scattered around the world and that is a sign of God's goodness and God's glory, not God's anger and frustration. We can, in fact, be one without being the same. Unity and uniformity are not the same thing. God delights in difference. That is why we were designed for diversity of every sort. It is our very human tendency, though, to think differently. It was true back in the days of Babel, and it is true today. Far too often and with far too dangerous consequence, we see differences or diversity as a problem. In December of 1941, Japan attacked the United States of America at Pearl Harbor. Over 3,000 Americans lost their lives and we went to war. In February of 1942, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed an executive order requiring the incarceration of everyone of Japanese descent 
in much of California, Washington, and Oregon. Orders were sent to 120,000 people to leave their homes, farms, or businesses, and they did not know where they were going. Alice was nine years old. She and her mother and her younger brother, Harry, packed up their farm. Her father had been picked up by the FBI two months earlier, and no one knew where he was. Alice and Harry were born in California. They were American citizens. Her father and mother were born in California. They were American citizens. None of them had ever set foot in Japan. Alice remembers it being a frantic and frightening time. When the day came, they could only take what they could carry. They walked downtown with other members of the Japanese-American community to wait for the buses. And soldiers kept an eye on everyone. When they arrived, having walked more than three miles, they sat down. Harry said he was hungry and he asked for something to eat. And Alice remembers how that question made their mother break down and weep for the very first time in all of this. She apologized to her children. She said, I am so sorry. What kind of terrible mother would forget to bring food? And Alice remembers scolding Harry for making their mother cry. So she left to go see if she could find something for them to eat and drink. And in the crowd, there was a tall white woman with a tray of sandwiches and fruit and cups of juice. Alice asked her if she was selling the food. The woman said no. She offered it to Alice for free. Alice refused. She said she could pay, but the woman insisted. I don't know you, Alice said. The woman said that she was a Quaker. and She called herself a Christian friend. And she said that they thought what the government was doing was wrong, so people in her church made sandwiches and brought juice and fruit to give away to anyone who was hungry. Alice took some food back to her mother and her brother. Harry began to eat right away, but their mother said, where did this come from? From a white woman, Alice said. A woman who says she is our Christian friend. Well, that is not possible, her mother said, because we're Buddhist. We don't know any Christians. They're not our friends. And right now, white people do not like us at all. So Alice went back to the woman and she said, we don't have any Christian friends. And the woman said, well, now you do. Alice and Harry and their mother boarded a bus and they were taken to San Mateo where they lived in a horse stall in a racetrack for six months. And then they were taken by train to a camp in Arizona just south of Phoenix where they lived for two and a half years. Eventually their father rejoined them. He had been imprisoned in South Dakota. When the war was over, Alice and her family, they moved to Idaho and they began farming again. At school, Alice met Becky, a Nazarene, who invited Alice to sleep over at her house and then go to church one Sunday. 
Initially, Alice's mother said no. She said, you have a bed here in this house. Why would you sleep anywhere else? Mother, Alice said, Becky is my Christian friend. And so she was allowed to spend the night. This pattern repeated itself more weekends than not, and eventually Alice joined the church, publicly declaring her trust in Jesus Christ. Sometime later, Alice and her family moved yet again back to California to start over, and right away, Alice began worshiping at the San Lorenzo Japanese Christian Church. She convinced her family to come with her, and eventually they too joined the church and found a family there. When Alice was a college student, a young seminarian from the Berkeley Baptist Divinity School came to the church as a student pastor, and Alice thought he was very handsome and very conceited. The seminary student remembers thinking that Alice was smart and beautiful. He asked her out on a date, and she said no many times. But he was persistent, and eventually she said yes. They fell in love, and they got married, and Alice and Richard had four sons. One of them is an optometrist in Los Angeles. One of them just retired as an air traffic controller in Honolulu. One of them works for a nonprofit agency serving immigrant families in Seattle. And one of them is my dear friend, the Reverend Dr. Roger Nishioka, who is one of the most highly regarded, highly sought after preachers and teachers in the Presbyterian Church throughout the world. And just so happens to be coming to join us at our retreat in March in Montreat. Now when Roger tells this story, which he has very graciously allowed me to share with you, he says the only reason that I am here today is because of one Quaker woman and a tray of sandwiches and fruit and juice. And then he says, when I go to heaven, I can't wait to meet that woman. I want to ask her, how did you have the courage to act when everyone else in the country, including the president, was convinced that my mother at nine years old could not be trusted? I want to ask her, he says, but more than anything, I just want to thank her. And I would like to thank her too for her conviction that being different was not equated with being a threat or a problem, but rather a gift to be affirmed and celebrated. The world and the church and even my own life would be tremendously poorer off were it not for her. The God of the universe could never ever be threatened by the plans of mere humans. God intervened because they all wanted to be the same. And that was not God's plan. Unity does not equal uniformity. Being one does not mean being the same because God is graceful and wise and creative and just and merciful and loving. And for that reason, we were designed for diversity. 
pray with me? Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.